Hello and welcome to Atlantic Conversations. I'm Fanula Sweeney. The Atlantic Fellowship Programme works with a diverse community of leaders around the world with a common commitment to fairer, healthier, more inclusive societies. Through its seven programmes focused on equity and healthcare, socio-economic equity and racial equity, the Atlantic Fellowships offer those leaders an opportunity to gain new perspectives and new colleagues, while strengthening their confidence in their work for change. In each podcast, I'll be speaking to an Atlantic Fellow about their work and ambitions for a more just world. For this series of podcasts, I travelled to Melbourne to meet up with some of the first Atlantic Fellows for Social Equity. Their programme is based at the University of Melbourne. Today I'm joined by Ariadne Goring, an Atlantic Fellow for Social Equity. Ariadne lives in the Kimberley region in the far northwest of Australia and works for an Aboriginal organisation called the Kimberley Land Council. I first asked Ariadne what had motivated her to become involved in Indigenous-led conservation. It goes back a very long way. I'm not an Indigenous person, but I grew up in the southwest of Western Australia. My dad, through training, is an anthropologist and also a school teacher, and we spent quite a lot of time on country as a young kid visiting and having school camps out in very remote Aboriginal communities. We used to collect little grubs, go hunting. As a young kid, that was such a profound experience to be with Aboriginal people, participating in ceremonies, collecting bush foods, and feeling that wonderful sense of freedom and home in such a vast landscape. I started working for an Aboriginal organisation 20 years ago, the Kimberley Land Council, as a receptionist on the front desk doing admin, and over the last 20 years have gone through numerous different roles right throughout the organisation to now working directly with the CEO and the board. So I feel like I've been growing up by the old people and the Indigenous board members of the Kimberley Land Council and they have invested a lot in me and the knowledge and expertise that I now hold. What is distinctive about Indigenous-led conservation as opposed to what we understand to be general conservation? Kimberley Land Council has a regional footprint for an area the size of the state of California in the northwest of Australia. In that area, Aboriginal people have had their land rights recognised It means that their connection to their traditional lands have been formally recognised through the Native Title Act by the Government of Australia. And what had been the situation before that Act? Before the Act, Aboriginal people weren't formally recognised as the first people of Australia and had no legal rights to their traditional lands. So the passing of this Act was a legal revolution? Definitely. It was a big cultural shift for Australia at the time. It was in 1993 and there were news accounts of people's backyards in the cities being stolen by Aboriginal people. Did it mean that Aboriginal people could go back to lands they had traditionally been from and say, this land belongs to me, I have a right to own it? That's right. Through a court process, which is a very long process, I have to say, a lot of the native title claims, as they're called in Australia, have taken up to 15 to 18 years, some of them, to be formally recognised. There's a lot of procedural matters that you have to go through to be recognised as a native title holder. It effectively identifies that this community of people, of Indigenous people, are the first people who have an ongoing connection to their traditional lands. And that connection 
tension has endured beyond colonisation into Australia. What impact did passing that act in 1993 have on conservation in general and specifically for Indigenous-led conservation? This journey started out for me 20 years ago with the Kimberley Land Council KLC. We had what you call national parks and they're managed by the government. Aboriginal people might be consulted about different places where people could access those national parks or fish or hunt or camp or be able to undertake some kind of cultural practices. But that was really about it. There was no input into decision-making or the activities within the park or how the park would be managed. And then within Australia, the government came up with a program called the Indigenous Protected Area Program, which is a voluntary agreement for Aboriginal people or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia to declare a protected area on their native title lands. What that does is empower the native title group to then privately manage that conservation area in a way that's attuned with their cultural practices. Can you give us an example? Fires always had a really big impact on the environment, particularly in northern Australian savannas. Aboriginal people have always used fire as a tool to manage the landscape. But over the years, as areas were colonised and new farming lands or cattle stations were opened up, people were removed from their traditional lands and they stopped using fire as a tool to manage the landscape. So what we've found is these huge hot season, really hot wildfires come through and have a really detrimental effect, not only on native species, but also on infrastructure and people's lives. Over the past 15 years... Aboriginal people through this Indigenous Protected Areas program, also an investment in what we call working on country Indigenous ranges, are reintroducing their traditional fire management practices back into the landscape. And that has had a huge impact across northern Australia by reducing wildfire by 50%. And suddenly we're finding big populations of key species like Gordian finches and little marsupials like quolls flourishing in their populations because of this change of fire regimes. So are these practices practiced across wildlife parks all across Australia or are there specific areas where these traditional practices are continuing or have been reintroduced? The movement's really sparked across northern Australia because people haven't had the impact of colonisation as they have in southern Australia. So there's been a strong movement led across northern Australia and in the remote parts of Australia. As that's picked up, it's had a really positive impact on Aboriginal and Indigenous people in the southwest of Australia who have then started to refind and reclaim their cultural practices and there's been a lot more interest from governments and park managers to integrate traditional knowledge back into conservation. A method has been developed in consultation with the Australian government about the reduction in carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions that comes from wildfire. So if you're reintroducing traditional fire management which reduces wildfire then you're actually also reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So this method has now been approved by the Australian government scheme and it's created a $100 million industry across northern Australia of Aboriginal people managing their country in a traditional way, which is having a global impact. Not only is that creating jobs on country, but it's also recognising the skills and expertise that Aboriginal people inherently have and what a great benefit that is to the world. 
It's generating income that goes directly back into these remote communities, which then employ people to scale up this work. So it's not only reducing carbon emissions, but it's also creating jobs, reigniting cultural practices and having a really great social impact across Northern Australia. The wonderful thing about that is that we're now, through an investment by the Australian Government Department of Foreign Affairs, adapting that knowledge base for Southern Africa because they also have savannah landscapes which are very similar to Northern Australia and have these really hot wildfire regimes. So Aboriginal people from Northern Australia are going to Southern Africa and working within Botswana to adapt that knowledge and expertise for that location. You're quoted as saying... I've seen the transformation that happens when people spend time together on country. These experiences have fueled my interest in building a remote industry founded on the cultural and natural values of the Kimberley region. And you've just been outlining that for us. So what is next? Is there more to do in Australia or is the focus now going more international? As with the fire example, it's really starting to spark a lot of interest internationally. And so part of our work has been how do we connect with other Indigenous peoples around the world that are doing similar work and how do we share this knowledge and expertise? We know that the latest climate change report from the IPCC identifies that the next four to 12 years will have a really big impact. The decisions that we make today will affect our future generations. So we've got this window of opportunity, as I see it, to be elevating this knowledge that Indigenous people have about how best to manage country and really valuing that and investing in it. So this opportunity to bring Indigenous people together around the world to share their knowledge and expertise with each other, but then to also be creating this idea of place-based economies that nurture people, their knowledge and the environment. This is what the world really needs at this critical point in time. You have watched this over 20 years working in this area. It must have had a huge impact on Indigenous people. Have you seen the change or the impact it's had on them over the last two decades? We talk about the impact of intergenerational trauma and how people have felt very disempowered and have felt like what they have to offer is not important. What does it mean in the Indigenous community here in Australia to have intergenerational trauma? The impact of colonisation, what happened for Aboriginal people in Australia is that they were removed from their traditional lands. Children were stolen and put into government institutions and missions So families were fragmented, they were poisoned, there's been huge massacres in Australia that are not really seen or spoken about. So the impact of that trauma that past generations have experienced is passed from one generation to another. So people have felt like their knowledge, their skills, what they have to contribute is not valued And that has spiralled into a lot of social disadvantage and substance abuse issues that people living in remote areas often grapple with. So acknowledging how important traditional knowledge is and cultural practices are and reconnecting people to their traditional lands with cultural elders is having a really positive impact on this young generation who suddenly see a pathway for themselves and a future and see the knowledge and skills that their old people have is being really important. And so they're reconnecting with family, reconnecting with their place, and feeling like they have skills and expertise that is valued by all of Australia. 
What motivated you to become an Atlantic Fellow for Social Equity connected with the University of Melbourne? I was nominated by the Business Council of Australia for the work that we have been doing in the Savannah carbon and fire industry. I was surprised. I'd never really seen myself as a social change leader. I was the person that supported leaders to do their work. But I also really went for it because I was feeling like I got to this point of doing all this amazing work and not quite sure what came next and saw the fellowship as an opportunity to take some time out and reflect and explore how we could scale up the work. And do you think that's possible now or more a practical reality potentially than it would have been before? Absolutely. The fellowship year really gave me the time out to invest in thinking about how do we create a global network of Indigenous groups that are working on this concept of place-based economies. So through that and through the fellowship, I was able to collaborate with the BHP Foundation, who is investing in projects of this scale and size around the world. So what's next for you? We've come up with a design for the global network and are now working with partners to put together an activity plan working with the BHP Foundation and other foundations in an investment proposal into that. I think the really interesting thing for me in this piece of work is bringing together conservation, Indigenous people and global resource company. Traditionally, there's been a lot of opposition and tension with Indigenous peoples and conservation and extractive industries. So this is creating a bridge across areas where there's been in the past not great relationships. So it's creating a new narrative. And the community is behind it for the most part, the Indigenous community? Yeah. So in the beginning, we're working with Indigenous communities and conservation groups that the foundation is already in partnership with and starting that as a pilot. And then from there, that will grow over the years and take on a life of its own. A seed that will grow, hopefully, into a big, strong tree. And we look forward to catching up with you at a future date to see how it's progressing. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And that was Ariadne Goring, Atlantic Fellow for Social Equity. For more information, you can visit www.atlanticfellows.org. I'm Fanula Sweeney, and you've been listening to the Atlantic Conversations podcast.